Hello, this is Leslie Groff with Tensor, and this is Legal Tensor, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. The Supreme Court has been in the news a lot lately, and one of the biggest issues of concern is the lack of a code of ethics for the justices. Today, my guest, Renee Jefferson, professor of law at the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics and the director of the Law Center of Outcomes and Assessment at the University of Houston Law Center, joins me for a discussion of the past, present, and potential future of both term limits and codes of ethics for members of the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. The Supreme Court's ethics have been in the news so much, you know, Clarence Thomas has taken trips and and some other issues. And there's a question about a code of ethics. I know that there is a proposed code of ethics that hasn't been adopted. So let's begin with the idea of whether the Supreme Court should even have a code of ethics. Well, that's an excellent question. I think if you would ask some of the justices, they would say they don't need it. But if you would ask any other member of the federal judiciary that sits on a federal district court or a federal court of appeals, they would disagree because all other federal judges, in fact, do have a code of ethics that applies to them and they are required to follow it. The Supreme Court is unique in that regard. In terms of what I think, I would say that it is important for the Supreme Court to indeed adopt a code of ethics that it holds itself to, holds itself accountable to. And we could talk more uh, about why I think that's so important. But for now, I will just say, if they don't do it, I am concerned that Congress will at least try to impose a code of ethics on the court. And so for important separation of powers reasons, and also, frankly, because all other courts do it, whether we're talking about the federal courts, as I mentioned, or state courts as well, the U.S. Supreme Court should come together and enact, adopt a code of ethics that it complies with. So let's let's go back to the history of all this. How did the Supreme Court evade regulation, for lack of a better word, that all the other federal courts didn't evade. So how how come they are not subject to a code of ethics? Well, there's there's a number of reasons why they aren't, but I think it, it largely goes to, you know, the idea that in our constitution, there is one Supreme Court and the Supreme Court answers only to itself. And so it, there can't be another body, um, like there's, For the federal judiciary, it's the judicial conference that administers the the code of ethics and helps self-enforce it. At the state level, each state Supreme Court has a code of ethics that it adopts and then often delegates it to an administrative body that will handle judicial conduct and discipline. But when it comes to the Supreme Court, I mean, it's it's the Supreme Court. And so I think the argument that the justices would make is having a code that's imposed upon it, who's going to administer and enforce that? And if it's anyone else other than the justices themselves, then we, it would be violating our Constitution because the right. Constitution contemplates a Supreme Court. Now, that still doesn't answer the question, well, okay, I suggested that the justices could themselves come up with their own ethics code that they comply with. And, um, you know, I think that's just an artifact of because they didn't have to, they haven't done it so far. And I think they also would say that there are at least is some measure of ethics that is imposed. For example, if a party believes that a member of the Supreme Court has a conflict of interest and they shouldn't preside, that party can make a motion to ask the justice to recuse or to not hear that case. 
so there is a process, although that process also is a little bit questionable because I guess, guess who decides the outcome? Well, that's of that what motion? I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. Like, what if they just? It's, it's the justice themselves. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I- you know, so you're you're leaving you're leaving to an individual to decide whether or not they're impartial, which you know, from a process standpoint, is perhaps not the most impartial process to be imposing. So yeah, so you know, it's interesting because most of the students who are in law school now don't remember way back that there have been at least I can think of Abe Fortas as one of the Supreme Court justices who I don't know, did he leave on his own? Was he kind of kicked out for wrongdoing? How did he come to leave? He was a justice of the Supreme Court and he had to excuse himself from the court. So what happened there? Exactly, yeah, during the Nixon administration. um, And it was because of the the same kind of controversy and concerns that we're seeing now, uh, allegations that are coming up about the Supreme Court justices now in terms of outside influences that could impact how they decide a case. And what we're seeing in the headlines today, it's outside influences like travel that they've taken, uh, gifts, money that's been paid, for example, for uh, a dependent's tuition, that sort of thing, or for schooling. And with Fortis, similar sorts of allegations involving um, fraud and other concerns. But he, he on his own, sort of the, the public shaming of it all, stepped right. aside. And we don't see that same sort of dynamic right now with this court. In fact, if anything, it's a little bit the opposite of the justices that have been called out publicly by the media, for example. Uh, they've been, you know, in particular, Justice Alito has been quite vocal going on the attack in the media himself, even giving an interview with the Wall Street Journal, where he actually said that he believed uh, Congress has no authority to regulate the Supreme Court at all, let alone impose an ethics code, which uh, is a little bit shocking because, in fact, Congress does have the ability to regulate some things about the Supreme Court. And just as another bit of history, um, most people don't realize that there haven't always been nine justices on the court. And in fact, the first Judiciary Act, there were five associate justices and a sixth chief justice. That was something Congress decided. And then eventually we end up with our our nine. Again, that's because of legislation from Congress. So Congress has not yet imposed an ethics code. Are they able to do so? I I think that they probably can, notwithstanding Alito's protest to the contrary. You know, and, and I find it also ironic because what fear would they have of an ethics code, unless they're violating the ethics. Um, But we can leave that at that. However, somewhat akin to that is this idea that the Supreme Court is suffering from an identity crisis and a crisis of faith from a lot of the general public. So do you think that adopting an ethics code would help kind of remediate their reputation? Well, you're right. Public opinion about the Supreme Court has fallen to an all-time low. And there are a number of reasons for that. I don't think it's just this latest controversy that's embroiled in the debate about whether or not the court should have a code of ethics. I think that the public's lack of confidence in the court also goes to some of the decisions as of late and also just how controversial some of the more recent appointments to the court have been. And so your question would adopting an ethics code solve the reputation crisis of the court? Not completely. I don't think so. But what it would do, importantly, is give a 
an expectation of what the public can expect the justices to adhere to, and then a way to measure and assess if they are adhering to it. And so while I don't think it would solve all of the reputational concerns that the court currently faces, it certainly wouldn't hurt. And especially for litigants who are appearing before the court, having a code of ethics in place really matters. When we think about the public perception, I think about public perception on a few different levels. And one is, what does it mean for the litigants who are in front of those justices having their case decided? And we know the nature of litigation, especially if you are at the Supreme Court, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. Right, right. And so... You, you may not have everyone walking away happy, but you want them to believe that the process was fair and that they could trust in it. And having an ethics code in place goes to the ability of the litigants having their case decided, having an outcome that they can trust. And then you can zoom out. There's also the public confidence in the institution of the court. So Even if I will never have a case that involves me directly, personally, my name in in the the case squib, it matters whether or not I believe that the decisions that are coming out of the court have credibility. And it matters that the public believes in that. And so I think that having an ethics code in place also goes beyond just our individual litigants feeling that their case is fairly decided. But it goes to the public trusting in the justices if they know that they all are complying with similar rules governing conflicts of interest or financial disclosures or um, ways that their view could be biased, that if they all have the same standards applying to them and that they're all following them, that gives us overall confidence in the decisions that are coming out from the court even if we might disagree on the substantive result. So this is kind of an unfair question to ask in a way, but why isn't the Supreme Court interested in adopting a code of ethics? Well, so I don't know that they're uninterested in it. Although, I mean, maybe the fact that they haven't done it yet suggests that there's a lack of interest, at (laughs) least by all of them. Um, Some of them are definitely interested. Uh, In fact, just this past week, we heard from Justice Elena Kagan in an interview where she said, I believe uh, it would be a good thing to have a code of ethics. Chief Justice Roberts has also said that it's something that the court should do. And uh, in in recent weeks, uh, Justice Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, also spoke in an interview oh. and said that she welcomed scrutiny of the court. And so it it may be that it's that it's coming. We'll see. Perhaps that's something that they will be working on in the coming term. But I I don't have a good answer for why it's taking so long because it seems to me that a quick fix would be to just agree to follow the same yeah. code of ethics that all of the other federal judges follow. And so again, and I'm going to return to something we talked about at the very beginning. So to play this out, let's say that a the court adopts a code of ethics, and just like is always an issue with the court, you know, nine, seven judges like this code of ethics and two judges don't. And the two judges who don't want to bring a lawsuit, right? Because they want to challenge it. It's very Marbury versus Madison issue. Because they're challenging a congressional code of ethics that applies to the Supreme Court of the United States right? Which is changing my hype a little bit. I'm sorry. Let's say Congress adopted a le- some, something. Well, you you can still have some, you can kind of keep it that way. Like, I mean, okay. the chief, the chief could come in and say, we're going to follow what all other federal judges follow, even if it's something that was created by Congress, right? So okay. you can keep that in the mix. Okay, good. All right. So then what happens? 
Like, let's say that these well, two well, dresses right. they litigate, right? And they end up litigating is... in front of themselves. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, part of the argument for, for those who would be in the camp of saying adopting an ethics code is a fruitless endeavor, because if you don't have full buy-in by all of the justices, someone doesn't want to comply with it what is the remedy going to be? And and uh, to your point, you could sue over the constitutionality of, of the code and um, that, you know, um, might not go your way. But also, what is the remedy, regardless of the, an outcome of a suit like that? What, what is what is the remedy? Is the remedy that either a justice doesn't hear a particular case or a justice is going to be removed? I mean, this is a country that um, does not have a history of impeaching uh, justices. Like one impeachment was has been attempted. Um, you're right. Like someone like Fortas, like might voluntarily resign, but that's certainly not going to happen with this current court. I think if uh, public shaming was going to cause resignation, we would have seen that happen already. It has not happened, and so you know, one of the, I, I suppose if I'm arguing against a, a code of ethics, which I would be arguing against my own personal view, but if I'm arguing against it, one of the arguments I would say is that there's no real enforceability. And I, I do think it's a point well taken. Why have words on a page if there's no enforcement mechanism for them? Right. So I don't know if you want to speak to this, but why do you think these justices have not stepped down when it's so clear that what some of the things they did were a conflict of interest, like accepting money from someone who has a particular agenda before the court. I, you know, I can't speak to any particular justice's own internal decision-making, but I, you know, these are lifetime appointments. And so, you know, it's up to each individual justice to decide when he or she is going to step aside uh, and we've seen in, you know, uh, recent vacancies that, you know, justices often will die in office. So they they never step aside. Right, right, right. Um, this has led to some interesting calls for reforms that might do something about that. So under our Constitution, it is a lifetime appointment, but a, a really great reform proposal, one that I favor, that came out of a commission from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences a couple of years ago. They issued a report. They were looking at how to improve civic engagement and democracy, and their report had lots and lots of reforms. But within it, there's one that goes directly to the Supreme Court and to this question that, that you're asking. And they would propose that Supreme Court justices serve a defined term. Their term would be 18 years, and it would be staggered so that in every term of Congress, you would have a new justice being appointed. Every president would right. have the opportunity to appoint two justices. It would remove some of the partisanship out of and right. the, the the maneuvering, you know, about, um, you know, pre presidents have realized that the most they're going to get is eight years in their term, but they can really uh, seal a p political agenda we by saw that, yeah. someone yeah. to the court who is going yeah. to be there for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So I, I actually think um, a proposal like that makes a lot of sense. And then the way that they deal with the fact that the constitution provides this as a lifetime appointment is the end of the 18 years then the justice would either assume senior status at the Supreme Court and could, you know, rotate in to hear a case if uh, there's a recusal or someone is ill or, or can't preside, or they could opt to move into a position uh, in a federal court of appeals. So they would still have their lifetime appointment, 
in the judiciary, they would just serve officially as a Supreme Court justice for 18 years. I, you know, that would take a that would take a unified Congress to make that happen. I We certainly don't have that right now, but I do think that it is a reform that if we could bring it into fruition, would help address a lot of the concerns that are being raised right now through the call for ethics codes and that sort of thing. This The structural reform would allow for a predictability in terms of presidents knowing that they're going to have two vacancies that they can appoint during their four-year term. It would remove some of the partisanship uh, from the appointments process. And importantly, it would also ensure that you have a relatively fresh set of justices in that no one could serve more than 18 years. And I think it will also be beneficial to voters. I mean, I have to say, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, but when I go to vote for a president, the first thing I say, to myself is, do I want this person appointing Supreme Court justices? Like that is my number one priority. So if I don't have to worry about that, then I can worry about my next priority, you know? So Right. No, that, that, that's absolutely right. It, it changes the dynamic very much, I think, and, and also, you know, helps for voters to, to really figure out um, who do I want my candidate to be if I can set aside the fact that ev- everyone who's president is going to have right. appointments to fill? And and so I think that, that um, that's exactly right. You know, some people will call for other sorts of reforms like, oh, we should increase the number of justices. And my worry about that is that with with each party, whoever's controlling Congress, we would just, you know, add some more justices or take some away, right? right. Depending on um, the political appetite. It doesn't have that same sort of predictability and potential to remove some of the partisanship out of it that the uh, 18 years sort of rotating term limit would. So what is the genesis of the lifetime appointments? What was what in other words, why did the founders of the Constitution s- insist on a lifetime appointment for justices, but not for Congress, not for presidents, you know, not for other arms of the government? Well, I think ideally the Supreme Court was at least in concept, although perhaps it has not played out this way on the ground in concept, the idea of a lifetime appointment is so that an individual on the court will be able to make decisions that are totally removed from concerns about whether they're going to be elected in the future or having to answer to a particular constituency that may have gotten them to the court in the first place. And so in the abstract, that makes sense, right? Lifetime appointment. You never have to worry about where your salary is coming from or what your future career is going to be. You can oh, make your decisions yeah. based on the law. Right. But as as it turns out it, on the ground, it hasn't quite played out that way. And, and I'm not so naive to think that moving to like the another, you know, reform, like the 18 year term limit or, or whatever. You know, I'm often asked, is it better to have an elected or an appointed judiciary? Like, there's politics involved in all of it. But to yeah. me, I think the the best we can do is have more predictability in terms of when appointments are coming up, you know, so that we don't have what we saw uh, in the case at the end of President Obama's term, where because the Senate controlled the nominations, Merrick Garland never had a hearing. But um, because of who controlled nominations uh, in an even shortened time frame with Amy Barrett, she got her hearing. Removing those dynamics, well, both in terms of pulling some of the partisanship out of it, like 
in terms of how things actually play out, but it also goes back to an earlier question, which is that you had asked, which is about the, the public's perception of the court and improving its reputation. And I think the less that we can see our elected officials really, I mean, playing games with the appointments process and the more predictable it can be and removed from that partisanship, the better for the public's perception of the court's integrity. Are there commissions working on any of this? Are there what? Commission, like, are there commissions working on this stuff? So there are, well, so uh, like I mentioned, the um, American Academy of Arts and Sciences had a commission that came up with the reform that I, that I mentioned. There are organizations that are devoted to reforms for the court. Uh, Fix the Court is one that comes to mind, a nonprofit that does this work. There is currently pending, um, it uh, had a hearing and came out of Senate, I, I don't know where it will go in the House, but there's currently a bill pending that doesn't go to reforming term limits, but does go to uh, giving the Supreme Court a timeline to adopt an ethics code for itself and that sort of thing. There is legislation currently pending in Congress about that. So I think Biden in his first, you know, at the beginning of his first term, he put together a commission that looked at Supreme Court reform. So lots of people are looking at it. There are lots of ideas out there. Nothing right now is getting a lot of traction. Got it. Well, this has been so fascinating and something for listeners to watch out for, right? To see if there's some reform on the horizon. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Oh, happy to do it. It's going to be in the headlines for sure. And so now you've got some good background. Exactly. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout. <laughs>